Listener Production. Hi, I'm Veronica Milsom and this is Full Blown Adult, the podcast that helps you find credible information from qualified experts for when it's time to become an adult. If you're currently transitioning to becoming an adult, you're in the right place. Maybe you're not even sure you're at adult status. A good indication is to look in your freezer and check what's inside. If there's potato gems, you're still a child. If there's perfectly labelled pre-planned meals, you're an adult. Zoopadoopers, child. Salted caramel anything, adult. Your mate Steve's jocks, child. Your wife's placenta, definitely an adult. At least, I hope so. In this episode, you'll hear from an expert all about crappy bosses and what to do if you get one. There's been cases that have succeeded because somebody, when they were talking to a recruiter, wrote on a napkin something the recruiter said that wasn't contained in the contract and then was able to rely on her version because she had a note. Hell, there's probably even some takeaways if you are the crappy boss. We've all had a crappy boss. The one I'm thinking of was not so much bad as just deaf. And I should have realised it from the moment that I met him at the job interview. That first interaction is just etched in my memory. Here's what happened, right? I'm waiting in the reception area for about 20 minutes before anyone arrived. When they did, it was this, like, very chill-looking boss who swaggers in and says, Veronica, is it? I'm just going to drop the kids off at the pool. Be back. Mmm. Yeah. For real. I was confused, obviously happy to wait, but I just kept thinking... How far away is the pool? Because if the local pool's like a 10-minute drive, then I guess he'll park, that's another three minutes. He'll pay, he'll leave them with their swimming coach, he'll give them some money for a post-swim snack, maybe burger rings, then come back. That's probably a half an hour round trip. Surprisingly, he barely takes any time at all. That was quick, I say. What? He says. Well, that was a quick trip to the pool. He's confused and says, Oh, I just went to the dunny. My response... Oh, so how are the kids going to get to the pool? To be honest, I still can't believe he flagged his toilet activity with a hopeful employee. Very strange. And even looking back on it, knowing my response was ridiculous because I didn't understand the expression, I still don't know what the correct response to knowing he was off to do a poo would have been. Good luck, I guess. In this episode, you'll find out how to deal with a boss who may be harassing or discriminating against you or someone you know. Here to fill you in is full-blown adult expert in the field, Carly Stebbing from Resolution 123. Hello, Carly. Hi, good afternoon. (laughs) Please tell me it's true that the name Resolution 123 comes from the idea that finding workplace resolutions is as easy as 123? So it is because we exist now, but I would say that before we existed, not so much. Oh, really? So yeah, we are (laughs) going to talk about crappy bosses. I assume you don't have one. Well, I'm my own boss, so um, that that would be a terrible outcome if I thought I was also a crappy boss. (laughs) But sadly, I do spend a lot of my days discussing crappy bosses, so... Okay. Well, it's like even before you start a job, when you first get the contract sent through your email and you're looking through it, are there any red flags for a crappy boss? Yeah, there are actually. So I was talking to a client the other day who her first experience was an office-based role and she had to do a pre-employment medical that was really invasive and like went through a number of like physical checks that quite frankly probably aren't even relevant to an office-based role. What? Yeah. And then there was a lot in the contract around drug and alcohol random testing and things that potentially impinge upon your personal 
choices and circumstances where they wouldn't actually impact on your role. So yes, a contract can actually tell you quite a bit about the type of employer that you're going to work for. When it's like 30 pages and there's a post-employment restraint that's two years after your employment ends and that they can change your job and your position and your reporting line and your duties without your agreement. They're all the sorts of things that you need to be (sighs) mindful of. All right, really should be reading contracts then, is the takeaway. Please read your contracts. (laughs) So on the drug and alcohol testing that might be in a contract, are there any industries where that would be okay? Mining, for example, and different transport industries, uh, there's statutory obligations to do the testing. Okay. So effectively anywhere that you're operating machinery that it would either be a statutory obligation for your employer to do that testing or it would be considered completely fair and reasonable. I guess I query the adoption of that in the circumstance I talked about, you know, it's an office-based role. It's not testing for impairment, right, which is this is probably the big thing that the union movement have in the past picked up on too is, is a drug and alcohol policy reasonable where it's not about identifying that somebody is impaired at work and it's affecting their ability to work, but actually it's testing for what they're doing outside of work in their personal time. And so I think, you know, this is one of those examples where contracts notoriously will say things like, we have this policy and you agree to comply with it. And you're like, I mean, I've never seen it. How can I agree to comply with something that I haven't even seen? So Mm. often we'll say to them, your contract refers to X, Y, and Z policies, you should ask them for a copy. At the very least, just so you can read it and understand it and make sure you do comply with it. And drug and alcohol policies are often one of them. So I think that, you know, you need to be aware of that and understand if your employer is going to do testing and, again, think about, you know, is that somewhere that you want to be necessarily if it's not about impairment, if they're just, they're really just testing for personal recreational use. Right. So can you then negotiate this crappy contract? Like if your employer says that it's a standard agreement, for example? Yeah. So this is actually a real passion area for me. So my, in fact, if there's any Barefoot fans out there, you might recall in his book, he talks about- Barefoot investor, Scott Pape. Yes. Talks about how your most important investment is not actually your stock or your house, but it's your job. And so from my perspective, if your job is your most important investment, then understanding and reading the employment contract is pretty critical because it's the thing that's actually going to keep a roof over your head and food on the table. So one, reading it and understanding it and then absolutely negotiating it. So if there's terms in there that you don't agree with, that you don't understand, where there's too much discretion for the employer, so where they can do things like change your job and your reporting line and your remuneration without your agreement, then you should raise that at the outset. So when you first go and are discussing things with them, bring it up with them, raise it. So it's something that we do. So we look at employment contracts and we check whether or not we think the terms are fair and reasonable terms. And we advise our clients on what terms we think should be changed and what they can live with. And then we encourage our clients to go to their employer or through the, you know, however it's come about this conversation and put to them anything that you're not comfortable with. You know, people loved expressions like on target earnings, but then your base salary is like really low and on target is like pie in the sky. Right. So it's like meeting your KPIs you get. If you do. Right. And the business does and everyone else in Sundry does. And by the way, the KPIs and targets have been set so ridiculously high, you're probably never going to get there. So understanding things like what's your base salary, can that be changed because super goes up 
for example, can they pull that back down? Are the bonuses and commissions and targets that you were promised in the recruitment process reflected in the contract? And if they're not, then saying to your recruiter, your boss, your manager, I understood that my base salary was actually going to be this much, uh, the commission was going to be this much, and making sure all of that's in there is really important. Oh, it's so intimidating though. I know. When you first got the job and you're like so excited, maybe it's your first job and your dream job. Yeah. And especially I think, obviously when I'm looking at a contract, I'm thinking about you leaving and I'm thinking about all of the disputes that are going to come up (laughs) or could come up over the course of the employment relationship. Right. When you're looking at a brand new contract, you're like, yes, I just scored the job that I wanted. Is the remuneration right? And sign here. How many holidays do I get? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And not really thinking about those other things. So, I mean, that's why it's good to have someone else do that thinking for you. Raising things you're not comfortable with early in general across the board is always best. But then, look, I'll be honest, it's not uncommon, especially with really large corporates, for them to come back with a computer says no answer. So you might say... I think this is missing or can we talk about this? Or And they might say this is a standard form contract. We don't negotiate the terms. Okay. So have you ever seen a situation where somebody challenging their contract has meant that they didn't get the role anymore? Yes. Oh. <laughs> well, what happened? <laughs> they came to us and got some advice on the terms of the contract. It was a really crappy contract, actually. So we suggested to them that there were a bunch of changes that they should probably ask for. And by the way, obviously, it's an employer's job to think of the worst case scenarios, right? So typically what we say is like, this is what the best kind of contract for you would look like. Now you go cherry pick this advice, right? Which of the things I've told you, you've listened to and been like, oh, like that's terrible. I I can't live with that. Yeah. In this case, it was somebody pushed back and the employer said, gave that computer says no answer. It's a standard contract. Mm -hmm. And they pushed again and the employer said, like, we're not moving on it. And they pushed again and the employer pulled the offer. Now, I think though what that shows is that in the case of that particular client, the contract was so crappy that if the clauses couldn't be amended, they actually didn't want the job. In any kind of contract negotiation, if there's an offer made, which is what happens when you get a contract, Mm -hmm. you have the right to accept it as it is or negotiate it and make a counter offer, which is what if you go back and say, I want these terms amended. I've been doing this for over 15 years and that's one example of an employer pulling the contract altogether. Like what I would say about that is like, is that someone you really want to work for then if that's the way they're going to engage with you from the get-go? Totally. But the other thing that it shows is that there aren't many other people who are challenging the contract. You know, if they're able to be like, oh, we don't need you. Everyone else is accepting this Mm. contract. Mm. So if you've now got the job, there's your dream job, unfortunately not so dreamy, very crappy boss, and you feel like they're not recognising your achievements and the work that you're doing, what do you do at that stage? So I think... Raising things quickly and informally is always best. Informally, okay. Informally. Not in writing. Not initially. I guess it depends on the spectrum of things we're talking about, right? If it's about not recognising achievements or the like, then you might just call on your next one-on-one with them or ask them to have a coffee and just express to them what your concerns are and put it in the framework, I guess, of how it's going to actually turn you into a better employee if these things are resolved. Yeah. But then... Certainly as the conduct either escalates or becomes more repetitive or if you're not comfortable having that conversation, then that's when things like making a note of it, thinking about raising it with HR, discussing it with another colleague 
and then considering a more formal reporting mechanism is appropriate. Yeah, because I've heard about people who keep diaries. Would you recommend that as something to do with a crappy boss? I mean, lawyers love a diary. (laughs) We call it an extemporaneous file note, which sounds heaps better than a diary. Sure. (laughs) But, you know, there's been cases that have succeeded because somebody, when they were talking to a recruiter, wrote on a napkin something the recruiter said that wasn't contained in the contract and then was able to rely on her version because she had a note. Wow. Because when inevitably a dispute arises and it ends up being a he said, she said, she said, she said, whatever, and someone, whether it's your boss or the court or the commission, has to choose which version is true, Mm. the more evidence you have to support your version of events, the better. And a diary note of things that have happened at the time that they're happening is very powerful evidence. Gosh, imagine how many like disgusting items that person has written stuff down on, just has them all piled up in their office. Just napkins. (laughs) Toilet paper. paper. Post-its, just (laughs) lots of post-its. So what about if the boss does do something that's quite serious, like an inappropriate boss who does sexual remarks or advances? That's a super hard call, right? In terms of me saying you deal with things informally and raise it directly with your boss if you can, that's where that like spectrum of conduct comes into play. The fact that they mightn't have acknowledged your brilliant achievement in a team meeting, you might be able to have a chat about if they're a sexual predator, that's probably not something you're comfortable calling out directly. Absolutely keeping a note of that sort of stuff is so important. Discussing it with friends or family, especially if it ultimately is via text, et cetera, can be good evidence of it occurring as well. Discussing it with a colleague. With sexual harassment type conduct, if you can feel comfortable and confident doing it, of course you should let the person, because ultimately it's all about it being unwelcome, right? So the, the more openly you can express that this is not welcome conduct and it's inappropriate conduct, fantastic. If you're not comfortable raising it directly, then that's definitely where you want to look to raising it with a colleague that you're comfortable with or another supervisor or HR if your organisation is sophisticated enough to have a HR department. I mean, specifically, like we've seen so many instances recently and like more so in specific industries. It's not been a good 12 months for sexual harassment matters in general. Yeah, but I mean, it has been good as far as people talking about it more and it's probably just existed forever, right? It's good on the awareness raising front because there's plenty of people walking around going, oh, that doesn't still happen in 2021. You're like, oh, it absolutely still happens in 2021. What other sorts of harassment or discrimination is common? In terms of the other type of conduct that's really prevalent, I would say overwhelmingly it's workplace bullying. Okay. And what does that mean? Like, what does that look like? So workplace bullying is repeated conduct that causes a risk to your health and safety. And so it's different from, so harassment can be a one-off incident. Bullying is repeated behaviour. Okay. It can be very subtle. It plays out a lot in office-type environments. It can be the example of not recognising an achievement, but where that goes on and on and you're repeatedly the one that seems to be isolated from meetings or recognition. It can be being really overworked and underpaid, really unreasonable hours unreasonable expectations. It can be a circumstances where there's just inappropriate language being used. But our experience of it is more that it's the very subtle stuff. It's the not being included in meetings, not being updated on matters that would enable you to do your job better. And is that hard to prove though? That's really hard to prove. It's another reason why these diaries are fantastic, yeah. right? Because again, it goes to proving your version of events. So the Fair Work Commission is the tribunal 
in this space, the Fair Work Ombudsman's the watchdog and the commission is where you can bring claims. And in the Fair Work Commission, you can bring, shortly you can bring a stop sexual harassment claim. At the moment, you can bring a stop workplace bullying claim, but it's a place where you can raise the complaint with an external body and have them make orders that the conduct stops. So they're quite across the kind of behaviour to look out for. And if you've got a diary note to prove your version or if you've got witnesses that you can call on that will attest to your version, then that jurisdiction is now quite powerful because they can make orders for the conduct to stop. So they can't make orders for compensation. But where you actually just want to keep your job and be able to get on with things, they can make orders that the perpetrator be moved to a different department to help protect you in your workplace. So is it just a case-by-case basis as to whether you'd go to the tribunal or HR or your boss? I think so. Look, in general, it's always raise it directly if you can. Always keep a note. If you can't raise it directly, go to HR if there's a HR department. If your organisation is either very small, so there's not really any appropriate way to deal with it internally, or you've dealt with it internally and it hasn't been successfully resolved, that's the appropriate point to go external. The tricky thing with bullying, and this probably isn't tricky, but the fine line between like, oh, we're all having fun, I'm poking fun, and then when it tips into bullying, do you encounter that a lot where people are unsure? The problem I think with things like workplace bullying is that it can be very subjective, right? So the person that you believe is tormenting you with these, you know, incessant jokes about something and you don't share their humour, for example, might mean that that person's not necessarily intending to cause you any harm, but it is. And so in that respect, it can be quite subjective because it's your personal experiences that cause you to react in a certain way to conduct. Actually, the tests on workplace bullying and sexual harassment and the like are all what would a reasonable person think? Objectively, would they say that's appropriate workplace conduct or that is inappropriate workplace conduct? And that test is not normally that hard, actually, to make out. Humans, especially as we finally get back to being able to see each other face-to-face, pick up on a lot of different cues and, you know, if someone's kind of putting their head down every time you're making that kind of comment or disengaging and blushing when you make that joke about them... Those cues are important and can be picked up on and I think that they are indicating to you that for that person that's putting them at risk. Ultimately, the line in the sand is what would a reasonable person think about the conduct, not necessarily what do you personally think or what does the person that's bullying you think, but what would the objective third party say about it? Yeah. And is that process all the same if you've just witnessed it happening to a colleague? The witness stuff and the the bystander piece, especially on the sexual harassment matters, is so important. Your role as a bystander and how important it is that if you see conduct like that, that you raise it as well. Whether or not, look, if I was a bystander and I saw the kind of conduct happening, I think my first instinct would be to check in on the person on the receiving end of it and see how they feel and do what I could to empower them to take the action and support them. That's good advice, yeah. Otherwise, if that person feels uncomfortable you know, ultimately something we, we talk a lot about an employer's duty to employees to create a safe and healthy workplace, but actually each individual employee has a statutory obligation to do everything they can to keep a workplace safe as well. And so if you think about it in that respect, then as a bystander witnessing inappropriate conduct, you actually have a statutory obligation and obligation at law to do something about the conduct that you're seeing 
And so if you're comfortable reporting it, and I think that you should. Yeah, otherwise you're part of the damn problem. Mm -hmm. So if you make a complaint, does the process of making a complaint protect you against what your boss could do to you, fire you or, you know? So I think that people don't make complaints because they're worried about being vulnerable. But in my experience, the reality is if you've resisted the conduct in any way, you probably are anyway. I mean, you've been targeted. So... If you make a workplace complaint, that's actually a protected workplace right under the Fair Work Act. What that means is that an employer cannot take any adverse action against you because you made a workplace complaint. It's a really powerful protection. So it's a a civil penalty provision, which what that means is that an employer and the individuals involved can be fined quite heavily if they breach that obligation not to take adverse action against you. An adverse action can include they can't start performance managing you out of sure, the organisation. Yeah. They can't change your role, so maybe move you off to a different department with a, in, you know, they can't demote you. And, of course, most importantly, they can't fire you because you've made a workplace complaint. And there are other similar protections, for example, the uh, discrimination law. So if you've made a, a complaint of sexual harassment, of sex discrimination, of disability discrimination, there are similar protections from victimisation that's called there. Okay. You might not put them down as a referee though. You probably wouldn't. Yeah. No. So how long does a boss have to respond to your complaint? It depends on the circumstances. So if you've made a complaint internally and there's a policy or procedure that applies, then you should ask HR for a copy of that so you're kind of a bit empowered with what the process is going to look like for you and that policy or procedure might say how long it's going to take for them to provide a response. If you make an external complaint, then the commissions and the courts have their own rules around how long it is appropriate for a response. I would say that at the tightest end, it would be seven days and more typically around 21 days to get a response. Okay, yeah. And 21 days might feel like a long time, but... It can feel like an eternity. Yeah. But obviously also, if you're not fit for work during that time then, you know, that's always something to talk to your doctor about. And if you're not fit for work, then you're entitled to take your accrued personal leave. If you're in a permanent position, that would be paid for however much you've accrued. But also, you know, that's what the workers' compensation regime is there for, is to protect you if you're injured at work. So if you don't have accrued leave or you need to take extended leave, then it might be worth talking to your doctor about getting what's called a certificate of capacity, which is all you need to kick off a workers' compensation and it could claim. be like a stress claim or something. Yeah. Because mm. it doesn't need to be something like a physical injury. It no, it can be a psychological injury. Yeah, yeah. So what if you did sign a contract that had an unreasonable request and you kind of worked that out afterwards because you're like me and you don't really read contracts and it said like there's like a very extensive notice period or like extra hours as needed. Is there anything you can do to backtrack? I mean, this is why I'm so passionate about reading your contract from the outset, right? Because okay, when you come see... I will the next time. <laughs> <laughs> when you come see someone like me with a contract like that, the hard thing is we have to be like, well, I mean, this is this is the contract that you signed and on its face, you know, an offer was made and you indicated you accepted that offer either by signing the contract or performing the job. Ultimately, the terms are often what we end up with, we end up with. I guess it's about then managing those terms. So on the hours piece... The most common contract you'll probably see at the moment, if we're talking about professional-based staff on a salary, is you'll see something along the lines of, like, this is what your annual salary is, probably paid monthly, and then the hours clause is probably going to say something like, you will work 38 ordinary hours per week and you agree to work reasonable additional hours. 
And then it probably says something like, oh, your salary compensates you for all of those reasonable additional hours. Now, Mm -hmm. especially when you're at the beginning of your career, it's probably a pretty good chance that one, maybe an award or an enterprise agreement applies to your employment, which is an underpinning instrument that sets minimum terms and conditions of your employment, including things like your salary and what you have to be paid for overtime. So that might be fine that your contract is an annualised salary and it might be slightly higher than an award salary. So that might allow for you to do some overtime, but not necessarily excessive overtime. So there's probably two things to be mindful of there. One is what is reasonable additional hours. So the underpinning instruments from your contract are an award or an enterprise agreement. And if that doesn't apply to you, and regardless, you've also got the national employment standards The National Employment Standards are 10 standards that apply to every national system employee in the country, of which most of us are. And one of them is that there is a maximum 38-hour week and that other hours need to be reasonable hours, taking into account your personal circumstances, your work health and safety, how much notice you got of them and whether you're getting paid for them. Yeah. And it feels like COVID has really blurred the lines on all of this with working from home because people are like, oh, I'll just deal with the kids for half an hour and I'll make up that half an hour later tonight. And so everyone's like, we work all the time now. All the time. You could roll out of bed and start checking your emails. You do, right? So with COVID, say for example, a lot of people have been able to work from home. What are the rules around like your rights to keep working at home? What if your boss says, no, you've got to come back to the office full time? I think that one of the first things to check if you are working from home and you want to stay working from home is what does your contract say about the location of your job? Going on and on about the contract. (laughs) It probably says you it's the office, right? Yeah. So the next then default position from that is, well, is it a safe environment for you to return to in the context of the current pandemic? That might include things like what do community transmissions look like in the area that you're employed, where you live and where you work? Do you need to get public transport there, which increases your exposure risks, obviously? And what is your employer's COVID safe plan? Okay. So if you have reservations, you're entitled to talk to your boss about all those things, including what is the COVID safe plan? How are you going to help reduce the risk of transmissions at work? Yeah. The hot topic on all of that at the moment, obviously, is mandatory vaccinations. So that's what we're seeing. It's absorbing basically every employment lawyer in this country's time at the moment, advising either employees about their rights to decline vaccination or comply if there's a policy and advising employers about what they do in the grey areas where there's no public health order that mandates vaccination, but they have a duty of care to ensure the health and safety of everybody at work. So that's another thing, you know, in terms of returning to work, another thing to consider is are you double vaxxed? Does your employer have a mandatory vaccination policy? And then the other factor that I think is important is to note that if, for example, you're a parent and you've got kids or you're a carer, the National Employment Standards, one of the things is your maximum hours of work. Another one of the entitlements under the National Employment Standards is to make a request for flexible working arrangements if certain criteria is met. And one of them is if you've been working for your boss for 12 months or more and you have caring responsibilities, then you are entitled to make a request for flexible working arrangements, which might include continuing your work from home arrangements. Yeah, which would be particularly good if you've like moved an hour and a half down the south coast or something midway through lockdown thinking, I'll never return to the city. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And then you're like, oh no, I'm in a pickle. I thought this (laughs) pandemic would never end. Yeah. So if things get bad and I don't want to work my notice period, can they withhold my pay? The contract probably 
almost definitely says that they can. The reality is, so let's say you don't give your full notice period in terms of what recourse your employer has. Technically, they could go to the court and seek an order for specific performance and force you to work it out, right? I mean, I'm not even aware of it happening on one occasion that that, that's occurred. Okay, That's not to say it has and it's just not something that comes up because ultimately who wants somebody there that doesn't want to be there anymore? You're not going to be a particularly productive employee. I think in all cases, if you've got to the point of you want to go, you read the contract and think, damn, it's not just a month's notice period, it's a three-month notice period. Even a month can feel too long if the relationship's really broken down. Yeah, I think in those circumstances, the first thing is that you again, raise it with your boss. So, you know, I'm going to assume the scenario where you've secured other work. You should also always indicate to your new employer how much notice you have to give, but you can also indicate to them that you've got a preference to leave sooner and maybe start sooner in the other role. I mean, I'd always rather to have the break, but... (laughs) um, And then the next step would be to go to your boss and give them your written notice of resignation and, you know, note how long you're required to give under the contract, but ask them if they're prepared to reduce it. And, you know, in a lot of circumstances, they are because they might not want you there anymore once you tell them where you're going Mm. or they don't want you there anymore because you don't want to be there anymore or maybe they're just not as crappy as you thought and they might be prepared to negotiate on it. Oh, that's been like the most positive thing so far. Actually, Mm. maybe they're not that happy. (laughs) (laughs) They're not all that bad. But (laughs) if you do all those things and they are crappy and they're not going to let you out of your notice period and you really need to get out of there. And I mean, my advice always to clients is you've got to do what's best for your mental health. And often that means that it's not worthwhile, you know, commencing legal proceedings, for example, because that's just going to be too stressful. But if your employer is not amenable to changing the termination date, then the realities are if you terminate early, they might try to rely on something in the contract that says that they can deduct money from you. Normally what will happen though is they have an obligation to pay your wages up until the day that you stopped working for them. Yeah, They have an obligation to pay you your accrued statutory entitlements like annual leave, long service leave. Yep. You don't get paid out sick leave on termination of employment. Oh, that'd be good, wouldn't it? It would be so good. And actually, if they try to deduct from any of those things, again, the Fair Work Act kind of steps in to help protect you. So an employer can't make deductions that are not authorised by you and for your benefit. So in the circumstances where we've had where an employer tries to deduct. It's not typically because a person cuts their notice period short. It might be because they say something was owed to them. You know, maybe you did a course of study while you were with them and now they want to reclaim that debt or something. I mean, typically what it takes is a letter from us saying, hi, we'd just like to remind you of the Fair Work Act and how it says, regardless of what your contract says, that you can't make deductions from these entitlements. Okay, so a lot of what we've been talking about like implies that you've been working in a big organisation, in a corporation that has an HR department. But what if you're working in a small family business where it's like five people? Is it the same procedure that you go through, the same process? So we talked about the fact that awards and enterprise agreements, so if you're in a small business, there's probably an award that applies to your employment. That's the same, whether you work for a small business or a big business. The minimum terms and conditions of employment under a modern award, for example, are the same for the mum and dad business as they are for the big corporates. The national employment standards that deal with the maximum hours of work, your entitlement to flexible work arrangements, your leave entitlements and the like, they apply to all national system employers and employees. That includes your small business employers. 
The only real disparities in the law, at least, in respect of small businesses and larger employers are around unfair dismissal and rights around casual conversion and redundancy rights. That's when small businesses do get a little bit of little bit more leeway. So for example, you're protected from unfair dismissal if you have worked for a small business employer for 12 months, whereas a business that has 15 or more employees is only six months. Okay. You are not entitled to redundancy pay if you work for a small business employer, which employs less than 15 employees, but you are if you work for a bigger employer. So really the law doesn't change that much. Your basic terms and conditions are very similar. It can make it harder to raise disputes because there isn't a sophisticated HR department to raise it with and raising your dispute with a business owner can be extremely intimidating. It's so personal. Mm. It's it's personal for them too. So I guess the important thing to understand, that's, you know, you asked a question earlier about when is the right time to go external to like the Fair Work Commission for assistance versus internal. When your employer is small, it's almost all the more reason to try to resolve it informally and quickly directly with them. But it's also the very reason why it's harder to do that. Yeah. And so, you know, all those protections in terms of being able to go to the Fair Work Commission, ask for stop bullying orders or ask for stop harassment orders, or if you're fired, going to them for unfair dismissal remedy, they're all still there and available for small business employers and employees of those businesses. And there's no reason why you couldn't use those avenues available to you. Well, that resolution really was as easy as one, two, one, two three. three. Exactly. <laughs> I don't even have to do my own pitch anymore. <laughs> uh, Carly Stebbing, thank you so much for helping me on my journey to become a full-blown adult. You are welcome. Pleasure. Well, Carly really drilled it into us. You gotta read the contract. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, when, if ever, I find myself employed in some capacity in the not-too-distant future, I'll be sure to read before signing. Next thing, she'll tell me I need to read the instructions for my new dishwasher before I put on my load of clothes. Yeah, all right, Carly, we get it. You love boring documents. But I also think I resolved that my boss, who was dropping the kids off at the pool, wasn't a crappy one. He was probably just a man with an irritable bowel who was finding new and exciting ways to excuse his constant toilet trips. And frankly, I respect that creativity. Next episode on Full Blown Adult, how the heck do you buy a new home? And what should you be looking out for? If you look at the stats, the home buying dream is not dead. There's more first home buyers and young property buyers getting into the market every single day. That's mortgage expert Phil Ringway next week on Full Blown Adult. Listener.